Very good evening and welcome to a rock show special with me, Andy Fox, on GTFM, BCFM, Rock Radio UK and Gravity FM. This week marks the 35th anniversary of the passing of one Philip Lynott, the enigmatic leader and frontman of Thin Lizzy, who died in January 1986, aged just 36. In the past 12 months, we've had a new documentary film, Songs for While I'm Away, a lavish six CD box set, and even a silver commemorative coin in honour of Philip was issued. In tonight's special documentary, we bring you the story of Philip and Thin Lizzy, with contributions from Scott Gorham, Brian Downey, Gary Moore, rest in peace, Midge Yor, Huey Lewis, Joe Elliott, and Philip's mother, Philomena, 
who herself passed away in 2019. And then we'll follow it with Thin Lizzy live in concert at the peak of their powers in the 1970s. But we begin with the story of Philip in Dublin, Ireland, with Philomena Lynott. In 1947, I left Ireland because Ireland was a very, very poor country then. There was no jobs in Ireland. I went with the flow of emigrants. I was 17 years of age then, and um, I ended up with a, a baby, and I was battered and beaten and thrown into workhouses. There was 18 unmarried mothers in that workhouse, and I was the one that got battered and beaten by everybody, the nuns, the women who were in there, for the same reason as I was, because they'd had a baby out of wedlock. But I was the only one with the black baby. So I was um, I was a piece of dirt, Philip's father. Was, um, in the Ameri- he was in the Air Force. He said to me, why didn't you tell me? And I said, sure, I didn't know where you'd gone. I thought you'd just abandoned me. And he said, no. When they found out I, I was uh, associating with a white girl, they shipped me out and they shipped him off to London. to him the only way I can get out of here is um, if somebody could find me lodgings so he found me lodgings and um, I went to live oh, the lodgings they were horrendous but he'd found them uh, and he had to tell the people like that the baby was black and it would have to be an area where black people associated because in those days on all the boarding houses around the country was no Irish, no blacks and no dogs. Remember those golden days We used to walk hand in hand I was your friend, your fool, your lover I was your man mm, I can see you then Smiling, looking straight at me Got me unawares, I blushed Let's sit beneath this tree And I can't get over the change in you I can't get over the change in you And I keep on remembering the Former Thin Lizzy guitarist Gary Moore. Phil grew up in Crumlin in Dublin with his grandmother. He seemed to be very proud to be Irish. He said, when I'm in England, I'm from Ireland. And when I'm in Ireland, I'm from Dublin. When I'm in Dublin, I'm from Crumlin. And when I'm in Crumlin, I'm from... And he used to say wherever the street he lived, and I thought that was really cool. Uh, It was a kind of funny situation for anybody who kind of hung out with Phil or worked with him at that time, because... 
he didn't really like bringing you in the house when his grandmother was there. I think he was kind of embarrassed about the whole rock and roll thing, maybe, or whatever. And he was very, very protective towards his grandmother. a great sense of culture it's a good place to be and you know it's nice to know that you're kind of walking down the same street as these people remember there was a video of him on the halfpenny bridge which is over the river liffey in dublin city center and and when you walked over that it was always nice to know that he had kind of been down there as well all the guys used to hang around him he became the leader of the pack and if anybody annoyed him or called him blacky or a black boy or anything he used to tell me i'll go i i give them a dig in the snot that was his favorite saying I'd, jesus ma i'd give them a dig in the snot he had been chosen to be put in a band called the black eagles and all it was this man who lived on our road mr smith he turned around and he bought four black polo neck sweaters and he put them on his two sons one on philip and one on another boy and he called them the black eagles they were a band my sister said to me philip is going to be singing down in the church hall tonight and philip heard her in and he said now ma don't come down you'll embarrass me so of course you don't tell me not to go so I went <laughs> I went and I hid behind the priest because he was a big fella like Friar Chuck yeah and Philip came out on the stage and he had a big big long black silk glove on like Adamant used to do going like doing all that he was only 11 and he came out and I thought oh Jesus he's not bad to himself you know blues for one thing he really liked bb king but he didn't just like the black blues guys i mean he liked peter green he was a huge peter green fan i think the mac was around at that time we used to go and see them together in dublin and stuff and he liked mike bloomfield's uh with the electric flag very much and he liked jack bruce very very much as well we loved that first solo album songs for a tailor we used to sit all day and listen to that and we used to listen to irish folk music and he used to listen to um all kinds of stuff i mean i think 
the funk thing was just an inherent thing with him because he had such a great sense of rhythm anyway. The thing about Dublin in those days was uh, concerning someone like Phil, there weren't many black people around. And Phil used to walk around, and of course he stood out like a sore thumb, and everyone would shout, Hey, Skid, Skid. And I'd say, Why are those people shouting Skid? The band's called Skid Row, not you. And he said, Well, don't worry about it, they think that's my name. We'd done this uh, television show uh, on RTE, and we'd done Strawberry Fields Forever, and Philip, every note he sang was off key, start to finish. So, an old Bridgman, uh, the drummer in the band, he was a great pal of mine, kind of done a little bit of subversive, and he kept basically insinuating, and he was right that if Philip was dead, we'd never make it. So, we had a talk with Philip, and I was looking down his throat. You know, I said, there's something wrong, like, you're not breathing properly, like, you're going flat and sharp all over the place. So when, I, when he opened his throat, I noticed this huge thing in it, which looked like a golf ball. It was the biggest thing I'd ever seen somewhere down in the cavern that looked like his throat. So we got him to see a doctor, and the doctor said that he had very bad tonsillitis. He had to have his tonsils out, and I had him sent over to England to me, and the surgeon said that he was keeping his tonsils for posterity in a jar. He'd never seen tonsils like them. Well, as soon as he headed over there to get his tonsils done, we thought we sounded better than the cream, and nearly as good as Jimmy Hendrix around Philip, so... <laughs> Philip came back, we never even gave him a chance to see, like, was his tonsils working or not? We just... <laughs> like, I'm sorry, pal, but, like, we sound great without you, and we don't look as good, but we will. <laughs> but at, those, at, that, at that time in your life, as anybody knows, you do tend to jettison anything that you think would get in the way of any kind of uh, fame. At the end of the day, obviously, it did him a favour, because he then started playing the bass, he got a band together called Orphanage, first of all, with uh, Eric Bell and Brian Downey, and then it kind of went from there and became Thin Lizzy. I get great enjoyment from playing the bass. I figure, with me, the bass playing suffers, but sometimes when I listen to live recordings, you know, I, I get quite amazed that I actually pull off some of the things that I'm doing, but uh, it just becomes second nature. Phil was a great bass player. He was one of those... Guys, I mean, he didn't play the bass like a lot of other bass players. He used a pick for a start, so he kind of played it almost like a guitar in many ways. He kind of strummed the bass, and he always kept the groove going. Brian Downey and him had been together since the, the two of them were about 14. They'd uh, grown up in the same estate in Dublin. They'd gone to school together, and that rhythm section live was, first of all, uh, an unbeatable musical alliance. He was very together. He would be the first up in the morning, and he'd be up making breakfast for you. When we lived together in Dublin, he was, he was like, you know, having your mother there. It was unbelievable how domesticated and how on the case he was. Sorry to shatter a myth. Midjor takes up the story. Philip never ever let anything run through his fingers when it came to anything to do with him or the band. You know, when you go around to his house and queue. He had a room that was dedicated to, you know, photographs. Not photographs of him up on the wall, but, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of sheets of photographs and lighting boxes. And he'd go through all the photographs and, and choose the right images for the sleeves. He was the guy 
who insisted on what the, the sleeves looked like because he came up with the concepts for them, you know, Black Rose or, or whatever it happened to be, Jailbreak. And uh, he wanted to oversee every aspect of it to the extent that he chose the photographers. He, uh, in conjunction with um, Chris O'Donnell, uh, who was one of his managers at the time, and created the whole visuals of what Lizzie was all about. And Philip wouldn't let it lie in someone else's hands. He always had to see and make sure that the t-shirt was right, make sure the uh, the album sleeve was right. The stories people who worked with him used to tell me that at the end of every gig he would send for the guy uh, doing the merchandise who would want to know exactly how many t-shirts had been sold, how many caps, all this kind of thing. Phil Linnett kind of was a guy who had all the gifts at his disposal and it's not uncommon for people who have all the gifts at their disposal to uh, get bored by that and to jump into a kind of a drug uh, situation. With the drugs, I don't think it got really bad until later on. I mean, of course, he used to do the usual things like smoke a bit, and we both did that in the early days, but I kind of got a lot of air in my system. I kind of squeezed mine into a very intensive period, but Phil kind of continued a lot further than that. They say that the night they say it ain't no good life, but it's my life. The audience were always really into Phil. I mean, whatever band he was in, he was he was a very charismatic performer, and because of how he looked and everything, he just had that kind of magnetism. And of course, the girls really liked him because he was this big, tall guy, you know, and he kind of he was a good-looking guy. And of course, he, you know, it was mutual to say the least. <laughs> he was the ultimate kind of lads lad. He'd phone you up out the blue and just say, right, you know, let's go out tonight. I said, well, it's a Tuesday. He said, yeah, yeah, Tuesday. That's when the proper people go out. He said, the weekends is amateurs. He said, we're, we're rock stars. We can go out any time we like. So we'd go out there and get smashed and, and start pulling all the women. He was a great guy to hang out with when you were young, free and single. You can take the boy out of Dublin, but you can't take the boy out of the disco, you know. I was watching television. I was in Glasgow still, and uh, it was Miss World or something, or Miss UK or some, you know, beauty pageant. And, and there he was on the on the panel of judges, you know, Phil Linnett, rock star. You know, you think, is he going to blow all his cred doing this? No, he was there for one reason. He was there because he was in a room full of, you know, beautiful women. And you think, well, that's a very rock starish thing to do. to come in the bar, all the footballers, all the showbiz people from Coronation Street. And when Philip and Brian Downey, who worshipped Georgie Beth, found out that he used to come in the bar, but not just come in the bar, sleep at my hotel, Philip and Brian would come over and, oh, I saw George doing a documentary on the telly and he was saying, when I go, I hope they do what they've done for Philip. Remember him for his music, not for what he died of, the drugs. And I hope that they remember me for my football, not the drinking.
Despite his well-known partying lifestyle, Phil also yearned for a family life. He managed to be able to cross all those divides, you know, you know, marrying Carol, the daughter of, uh, you know, Leslie Crowther. And you think, well, that's, that's not what rock stars do, but he managed to be able to do it because he had that ladsish thing about him. Not in a yobbish way, but in an incredibly likeable way. He was such a, a lovely character. You know, devious, but lovely. He was very close to all of his family's kids and mother and so on. And his extended family as well. I mean, he ran his band and crew as if it was family. He included me into his family. I made a couple records with him in, in the Bahamas. And he would be so concerned about if everybody was taken care of and who was there. And, you know, we'd be in the middle of the session spending studio time. And there would be a problem with uh, one of his kids or he had to talk to his mom or whatever. And I mean, everything would just go on hold because uh, that was clearly his priority. When you came in my life, you changed my world, my Sarah. Everything seemed so right, my baby girl, my Sarah. Thin Lizzy's prowess was as a great live band, culminating in the release of the double live LP, Live and Dangerous. Just unparalleled as a performer. I mean, maybe the best hard rock performer I've ever seen. Once you plug into uh, an amplifier, it definitely gives you a power sensation. There's no point in having a fast car and not driving a fast. There's no point in having and a loud amplifier and not turning it up. And we have loud amplifiers. stage like Philip Leonard. It wasn't until we actually went out and kind of went on stage and, and started playing the set that I realised just how powerful this was. And having watched it as a fan, having seen Lizzie many times uh, from an audience perspective, you know, you, you could see Phil was the centre of attention, you know, the, the two other guitarists, whoever it happened to be, kind of vying for their, their bits and skipping around stage and doing whatever. Um, but Phil was always the central focus. But seeing it from on stage, you could feel Phil as the central focus. He held, he rooted the entire thing together. He could command the audience. He had them in the palm of his hand. In the same way that, you know, a Bono or, or whoever would, would be able to do it now, he had that magnetism, uh, that strength and that power, you know, to get audiences singing along and his, his little one-liners. Is there anybody here with uh, any Irish in them? Is there any of the girls who'd like a little more Irish in all of that stuff. He was just great at that. He had this roguish element that the girls loved, you know, and you could feel it oozing off stage. Down from the ground you came to watch a 
pinnacle of Lizzie's success came with 1978's Live and Dangerous album, which has often been voted the greatest live album of all time. Scott Gorham starts the story. Peter Frampton had this album out. Uh, Frampton Comes Alive. Show me the way everywhere you went. Every time you turn on the damn radio, there it was. Show me the way. You know, and it was a great song. It was a great album, and it was done really well. And you knew why it was a success, but man, you you got sick of it. You just heard it way, way too many times. So Phil and I were sitting in uh, the car somewhere in Muskogee, Montana or something. And once again, whipped the radio on it. Wah, 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 one more time, right? And Phil turns around and says, I, for Jesus' sake, you know, what's up with it? Because, you know, on the album, the, the audience is going absolutely ape crazy, right? He turns around and says, he says, what's this guy doing on stage? Is he turning somersaults or a car? He's got a trampoline out there. What's going on, right? Because, man, he's not doing anything musically. I mean, he was absolutely pissed off, right? So I said, man, I don't know. She goes, she goes man, you know, we could do that. And then there was like this pause. And we both looked at each other and it was like, you know, we could do that. So we got the green light, but now it's where are we going to do it? And well, we can do either, you know, Dublin, you know, Manchester, London. But we figured uh, London, everybody lived in London. It really was, uh, I know Dublin is supposed to be the home of St. Lizzie, but. Because of our, our proximity, London really is became the home of, of Thin Lizzy. So it became a no-brainer. We, we would walk into Hammersmith and pay five or six nights in a row. So it, it became like a no-brainer. Like it is. So that was uh, set up the trucks out back, uh, did the sound check. The audience came in, and there was live and dangerous. Just went and did it. I think the best word to use to describe Phil as a life performer was charismatic. I mean, you just couldn't take your eyes off the guy. You know, that's what set him apart from the majority of, of Irish musicians up to that point. Uh, you know, we'd always come across as earnest and honest. I'm thinking of people like sort of, you know, Van Morrison and Rory Gallagher and people like that. But there was never any show business flash or anything like that, you know, uh, associated with either of those. Uh, artists, but uh, but Phil was all about it. I mean, he really was the first proper rock star from Ireland. You know, I mean, he really knew how to work a crowd. Def Leppard's Joe Elliott. It was the black leather trousers, the black jacket, the bass, the fact that he used to bounce the mirror ball light off his silver scratch plate. Oh, you know, just these little things. You've got to remember that back in the late mid to late seventies, this was still the kind of arse end of glam rock, and. The punk thing, it happened for certain people. I think Lizzie kind of carried through the two. I think a lot of punks respected Lizzie because they they had they weren't an overblown, fat, bloated rock band. They were hardworking, skinny, and they meant it. Um, yeah, they may be a bit more musical than, than punk bands would have liked, but um, they, they, I think they carried that through. And the showmanship was a big part of what they did and rolled over into bands like us, maybe, and even Maiden. Because Maiden with twin guitar lineup, it was a complete sort of shoe in to do uh, Thin Lizzy covers because obviously so much of what the guitarists do was based on what Lizzy did. And in effect, I mean, there had been other bands that had done it before. I mean, you look at like, you know, the Allman Brothers band and things like that. But Lizzy was somehow different. 
it was different in that it played catchy guitar melodies that didn't sound like they were retreads from country music and at the same time there were bands like say wishbone ash and stuff like that which did kind of get towards what lizzie were doing but they didn't rock <laughs> like lizzie did that was the thing we will take two steps back and improve on other things to go one step forward now as has never been the cause to lead you know a new direction mm. in, in that common sense i mean we we are a rock band we use drums bass and guitars and there's only so much you can do with it mm. you know and like we work on the premise of songs you know songs is the is the big thing with us you know so uh when people sort of come up to us and say i don't know really how to answer because it's this we're as good as our songs you know what mm. I mean? and that's how we write and the songs come from inspiration and I don't really check out where the inspiration comes from, you know, because that's getting too close to the mark. Uh, it's quite surprising that they never, ever made it in the States. Perhaps, I don't know whether it was, you know, difficulties coming to terms with the fact that, you know, Phil was a black Irishman. Are you ready to dance? Are you ready to rip it up? Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you ready to And Lizzie had a lot of trouble in America because um, they were suffering from a case of disappearing guitarist uh, syndrome. The kind of Gary Moore was in one day, out the next day. Brian Robertson was a kind of tempestuous kind of guy. And it was notable that, you know, the, the boys are back in town, got some traction in America, and was a, it was a hit single in America. And it really was a very American, kind of Steve Millerish kind of song almost. It was, you know, very California, optimistic uh, that kind of rock and roll, so Tim Lizzie must have had the bit between their teeth. But every time they approached America and did a tour there, there was a problem in the lineup. And it seemed to deflate their opportunities. And it is the extraordinary thing about Tim Lizzie that they were not a huge band in America because everything seemed to uh, speak in their favour. We've achieved nearly everything we wanted to do mm. in this in this side of the world. I mean, we wanted to try and continue doing so over here but it, it's good for us America because it, it teaches a bit of humility it can go to your head over here being successful over the time it's nice to go somewhere where you're not successful and people uh, you know treat you as a, a new a new like it's funny over here we're regarded as established over there we're regarded as an up and coming you know band after several successful albums 1983's Thunder and Lightning album and tour was to be Thin Lizzy's last. If I was to think too much about it, I'd be constantly depressed. But we've done all we can do. And so much of our, our show is just taken up by, you know, we have to play certain songs and we have to do certain things and we have to present it in a certain way. We like doing it, but when it's constant all the time, everybody just felt that it was time to knock it on the head. The my saddest recollection of Lynette was being at uh, Frank's Funny Farm in um, in London about 1983. We'd just finished recording Pyromania. Um, he'd heard a rough copy of it at the offices of uh, Vertigo in London. And I he was up in the bathroom talking to, it may have been mid-year, I can't remember. And I said, Phil, I'm Joe from Def Leppard. And he looked at me and he said, I heard your album, it's the reason I split the band. He says, I can't compete with that. 
And I remember thinking, you know, oh, wow. And kind of, I didn't know how to react. And, you know, many years later, with a lot more confidence and experience, I remember thinking, I wish I'd slammed him against the wall and said, well, just go make a better record. Despite the success of Thin Lizzy, we all found out eventually that Philip Lynott had demons of his own. I kept finding myself waking up, uh, you know, uh, hangover, wheezing, uh, freaked, you know, after partying all night long. Ugly-looking girls, you know, the, the whole time. I find myself in the bathroom going, I've got to give this up. You know, I just, it was a phrase I found myself using a lot, all mm. the time. And, uh... Uh, I thought it was a good phrase, and then uh, I the first verse was just about alcohol, you know. In the end, he lost his bottle drinking alcohol. And the second verse was about when the writing doesn't come, I put pen to paper. You know, I couldn't get the words out right, right, and that was W R I T E, mm. quite right, you know. And it was that, and then uh, the other ones. Uh, I mean, I treat it a lot more lightheartedly than I did when I wrote it. I mean, it's very intense when I wrote it, but. Now I can. Uh, now I find myself just. I can't use that phrase anymore. You know. <laughs> I've got to give it up. I've got to give it up. Thanks to. I've got to give it up. I've got. To Obviously, Phil was doing 
a lot of heroin at this time, although I didn't know it. All I would know is that he would disappear upstairs for a while and come back down and, and you know, in the middle of the afternoon, he'd be in a cold sweat. And the thing I remember most about it was I couldn't understand a word that he was saying to me. And that, that made it really, really difficult because I was already pretty nervous about being asked to play guitar with one of my heroes. And um, we would go to Midgeur's studio, which was a couple of miles away in uh, every afternoon to record some songs. And, and Phil would be coming into the studio and telling me what it was he wanted me to play on a particular track. And he'd, he'd be mumbling. I actually couldn't understand a word he was saying, which was really, really bizarre because he was Irish and I'm Irish. And, you know, in the past, I had no problem understanding him. And so he, he tried to explain to me. And then I'd go into the studio not knowing what he said. And that was the last time I saw him. I got on a plane after. I remember we watched Live Aid. To my dying day, I will forever, as Bob will, be ashamed that we never asked Lizzie to reform for Live Aid because they were sadly missing at that. But it just never crossed their minds that Philip should have been up there doing it, and he should have been. It was the last Christmas of his life. The marriage had broke up and there was a deal done whereby the only way uh, the children would be able to come up and stay with him in London was me. I would fly over and pick up the children from their mother and go and stay at the house and then have a nice weekend together and then the children would go back home for school. Now it's Christmas and um, Caroline was not going to spend Christmas with him this year, but I flew over. And when I got to the house, I always remember, I pressed the bell and he opened the door and he was in his underpants. And he went, sorry, ma, and he ran all the way up the stairs. And after a while, I followed him. I said, what are you doing in bed? I was at an office party last night, he said. Now, this was three or four days before Christmas. So he said, listen, Ma, everything is ready. The Christmas tree is down there with all your prezzies and the girls' prezzies and the stockings are hanging. Everything was beautiful. But I noticed his bedroom was very untidy, very untidy. I noticed Philip wasn't well. And I thought, I'm calling a doctor. So I called a doctor. And then all of a sudden he said to me, Ma, somebody will knock on the door and I've hidden a check out in the garden. So he, I said, okay. So all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and I opened the door and there was this guy stood there and he was a greasy looking devil. His hair, you could have, oh, it was dreadful. And I said, uh, oh, hello. I said, do you work for Philip? And it was then. I don't know what hit my head. It was then I realized he was the drug man. And I had the check in my hand. And with that, I drew back and I punched him. And he went flying backwards. And I don't know where he got it from, but he leapt over that electric wall because I screamed, I'm getting the police. I tore the check up. I let it fly in the wind 
and he ran and he ran for his life. Philippa told me that Big Charlie, his dear, dear, solid gold friend, Charlie had been with the band. He was one of the top roadies. He'd be more than a roadie by now. He was like Philip's other half. He's in heaven now. Thank God he's with Philip. I, I know he is, but uh, Philip said, Charlie's coming to spend Christmas with you and me and the children. Charlie came through the door with his suitcase and he said, where's Philip? I said, he's upstairs, Charlie. I don't like the look of him. I said, he's... So Charlie ran up the stairs and I could hear a lot of shouting because Charlie, it seems, had been on the drugs and cleaned up. So I heard a lot of shouting and then Charlie come down the stairs and he came to me and he went, has nobody ever well told you? And then Charlie told me, that Philip had a problem. There's something in man that wants to go to the edge, you know, and, and, and come back and, and write about it. You know, the artist, mm. they'll go to the top of the mountain, bottom of the sea, to the edge, always as far as they can go. Some people fall over the edge, you know. And uh, same with, with uh, drugs, I think. That there is some people who genuinely took them thinking that, you know, it would be an experience to write about, you know. And in doing so, they glorify the experience, and it's not always right. I'm in the house on my own, feeding the kids, doing this, that, you that when little Kathleen says to me, Nanny, Nanny, it's raining in the house. And I look up, and there's a big bubble of wallpaper, and it's dripping in the hallway. And I ran up the stairs, and Philip is floating in the bath. In full denim, denim jean, denim shirt. The bath is full, and the water's pouring over, and the tap's still running. And he went, Ma, Ma, I can't get hot. I'm freezing, I'm freezing. And I said, come on, love, I'll help you. Now, he was six foot two, the clothes are weighing him, and he was heavy. And look at the size of me. I will never know who gave me the strength to get him out of the bath, to get him to the bed, to take the damp things off him. And all he's doing is pushing my hands away because he didn't want me to, he, he wanted his privacy. And I'm shouting, for God's sake, I brought you into the world. Philip lost his fight for life on the 4th of January and I died with him Phil's longtime friend Huey Lewis it was a shock uh, it was a, it was a, the saddest day uh, in the last 20 years for me it was a very very sad day I was in San Rafael and word came to me and I broke down in tears and I was crying in my office and uh, and my kids came in and consoled me then my daughter was probably five at the time and I remember she was shocked to see her dad crying but it was a it was a very very sad day it just took such a long time for it to sink in um, that he was gone and he wasn't going to bounce back like he always had it was absolutely dreadful and I think anybody who had been in close proximity to Philip would have felt the same way the priest who conducted the funeral service said a wonderful thing about uh, Philip Lynott. 
he was the father of Irish rock. efforts of Philomena, the Roshin Dub Trust and millions of Lizzie fans around the world ensure that Philip's memory and music lives on. In 2005 uh, they erected a statue uh, to Phil just off of Grafton Street which was very much his hangout when he was uh, a kid in Dublin and uh, <laughs> accounts in the paper seem to indicate that something between 10,000 and 25,000 people showed up uh, for the unveiling of this statue. for it. It didn't cost the taxpayer a penny. The letters started to arrive from all over the world, from Rio de Janeiro to Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Japan, Finland, Denmark, Poland, Belgium. I traveled to all of these places. And they all run concerts in memory of him. And they all send the proceeds from the concert into the trust. And then they started, we want a statue of Philip. We started to hound the government and our Taoiseach, Bertie Ahern. And then we went to see all the art council and everything. So finally, we got permission to have the statue. And then it was where it would go. And we wanted Grafton Street because you always see Philip walking up Grafton Street singing, this boy is cracking up, this boy has broke down. He always used to stand with the flower ladies buying flowers and um, we got him stood right behind the flower ladies and they're delighted and um, he's in a beautiful spot and I'm very happy. Philomena obviously did the unveiling and she gave a little speech and they were playing some of Lizzie's music in the background and it was, it was just a great feeling in the air. And, but on the night of the show, we went back to the Westbury Hotel for a few drinks afterwards and at about four in the morning, I went down 
to have a good look at the statue because I hadn't really had a chance to look at it the night before with all the people there and everything. And it, of course, the streets were pretty empty by that time. And there was just this young guy standing there talking to the statue. And he was talking to Phil, really, and he was saying all these things like, Oh, I never met you, Phil, but I met Gary Moore one time. And of course, I'm standing right behind the guy. And he's coming up with all this almost poetry, just talking to Phil. And I thought that was really beautiful that it, it moved people enough that they would come along and just talk to the, the statue like it was a shrine and just speak to him in their own way, people who had never had the opportunity to get to know him. And I got a little bit upset, you know, because I was watching this guy and I got a bit tearful myself. And I also, I was looking at the strings on the bass, which is upright, which Phil's holding and uh, which the statue's holding. And the strings are actually, that you can move them. And I, I was getting upset because I thought people might come along and break the strings. And apparently people have been coming along and just putting flowers there and putting guitar picks into the strings, which is really nice. Yeah, a friend of mine from Sheffield came over to stay with me uh, in September. And um, here's me thinking that he wanted to hang out with me, but he, all he actually wanted to do was go downtown and have his picture taken uh, next to the, the big brass statue of Phil. So, of course, I got, you know, I had to have my picture taken next to him too. It was chucking it down with rain. So there's a, you know, a drenched Joe Elliott and this very bronzed, tanned and um, a, impervious to, to water uh, statue of Linnet stood next to me. It's actually very cool. It's it's phenomenal that, you know, amongst all the James Joyce's and the, the Yates and, and any, you know, Oscar Wilde's that, that are all sang and praised about in, uh, in in Irish culture, that they find room for somebody like Phil Linnet, who's only been dead 20 years. I mean, the Dead Poet Society, you know, he's absolutely the newest and, and most logical member of it. It's, it's, it's great. The girl's a fool, she broke the rules, she Same honey, when you're not around, I've been spending my time in the old town. I sure miss you, honey. Now you're not around. 
that you're not around this old town.